You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And if you do not have a Bible, I would urge you, urge you to pull out a Bible from the seat back in front of you, or there's one at the end of the aisle, just nudge the person next to you to pass that down if, if you don't have one in front of you. And uh, we want you to see God's Word for yourself. If you don't have a Bible permanently, that's our gift to you. Take it home, read it, ask us about it, study it with someone. Uh, we would love for you to know the Lord Jesus Christ through the Word of God. So as you're turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, uh, we're going to get to know each other a little bit this morning with a very simple question. This tells us a lot about you, okay? Raise your hand if you would consider yourself a hugger. How many people are huggers? All right. Fellow huggers, look around. These are your people. All right. Raise your hand now if you are not a hugger. Huggers, look around. These are not your people, okay? <laughs> Respect them, right? So, yeah, some of us are huggers. Some of us are like the touchy-feely type. Others, eh, not so much, right, Laura? <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I think most people, if the time is right, and if the person is right, and if the reason is right, would welcome a hug or a hand on the shoulder, or, or something like that. E- even you non-huggers, would you, would you agree with that? Can I get, can I, yeah, get some confirmation? Thank you, thank you. Appropriate physical touch is necessary and comforting to the human condition. Physical touch communicates nearness. It communicates care, even, even hope. And physical touch is going to play a key role in the section of Mark that we're going to read today. We're going to see Jesus touch the untouchables. We're going to see him bring his presence to bear on their situation. We're we're going to get a sense of the the nearness that Jesus brings to all those who seek him in faith. And while we can't physically reach out and touch Jesus today, he is still just as near to those who would seek him in faith. He's as close to us spiritually as the person sitting next to you who you can reach out your hand and touch. And that nearness demonstrates to us his care. It demonstrates to us his power. It demonstrates to us the hope that he brings. And so here's our big idea for today. Uh, Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. Seek his compassionate touch through faith. In the service guides that you've been following along with in your, with, with the songs, there's notes in there for you and that this big idea is in there for you. Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. Seek his compassionate touch through faith. Your Bibles are open to Mark chapter 5, and we find ourselves in this section of the book of Mark where Jesus is 
proving his identity and character as the Christ, as the Son of God. He's the promised anointed Savior King. He is fully God in fully human nature. And as such, he, he can command the wind and seas, and they will obey him. We've seen that just a couple of weeks ago. He, he can send the demons of the domain of darkness running with their tails between their legs into the sea, and he restores life to those whom they would oppress, like we saw last week. And in all of these events in this section, we see people that have, have tried every other solution, and, and nothing has worked. They've come to the end of themselves. They've come to the realization that they are hopeless until they come to Jesus. And he works to produce faith in their hearts and he brings hope to the hopeless through his presence. And so let's watch him do that today in our text. As we read this, in Mark chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 21. I want you to actively read this and listen and look for all of the words that are associated with physical touch that Mark uses throughout this section. And I want you to observe how they connect hopeless people to Jesus through faith, okay? Good Bible reading here, learning some observation skills. Here we go. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had but was, and was no better but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned to the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? 
The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. Do you see it? We need to seek his compassionate touch through faith. Did you see all the words there that were associated with, with physical touch? And did you, did you see how physical touch was connecting hopeless people to Jesus through faith? I'll try to point out all of those things as we go through the sermon today. Now, now as we think about good Bible study method, you, you would have noticed in your reading plan this, that this section that we're studying forms a classic Markin sandwich technique that we've talked about in the past, right? And the, the story about Jairus and his daughter provides the, the bread of the sandwich. That, that story is, is sliced into two parts and, and then filled with a, another story that brings it a little bit more flavor. And in the middle, you have this story about the healing of a woman who has a discharge of blood. Now, now for sure, uh, Mark organizes this partly because that's how it actually happened, right? Like, like this, there's a historical nature to this. But if we look carefully, there's also a literary and theological purpose in the way that Mark records this historical event. He could have chosen to record this in any way, but he chose to record it in this way. And the middle story about the woman serves to enhance and build anticipation of the story about the father and his little girl. It allows Mark to draw out some key similarities between the two events, even while giving us another amazing picture of the wonderful work of Jesus Christ. And so this woman's healing is, is like the meat and the cheese and the condiments in the sandwich that enhance the flavor of the bread, which would have been really good bread on its own, by the way. Like that, that bread could just totally stand on its own. I'd eat that. But with that in mind, we're going to take this passage in three sections just the way that Mark lays it out. I'm pointing this out to you because I want you to see that when I'm preaching to you on a Sunday morning, I'm seeking to follow the contours of the text. And I'm trying to model good Bible study method for you and show you from the text how you could draw these very same things out and draw the same conclusions. That's also why we give you the reading plans. We want you to learn how to study the Bible for yourself and for other, with others using some simple tools of observation and interpretation and application. And so I'm using the exact same three sections that Mark uses to break down this story. Jairus seeking, to lay a healing, seeking Jesus to lay a healing hand on his dying daughter. The faith-filled touch of an unclean woman. And finally, the, the resurrecting touch that brought life to the little girl's deceased body. And so as we study the historical facts, we're also going to see Mark's theological purpose in his record of the account. We're going to look at three reasons to seek Jesus' compassionate touch through faith. 
And the first is this, uh, seek Jesus' compassionate touch through faith because death is close at hand. Seek Jesus' compassionate touch through faith because death is close at hand. So Jesus, in verse 21, returns from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where you, you might remember from last week, he had, he had restored the demonized man, but the crowd there was, was begging him to leave, and so he left. And he returns to Galilee, probably in and around Capernaum, where he had made his home base before, and so the crowds resume coming to him, just like they had before he left. Remember, the crowds are impressed with his healing powers and intrigued by his teaching. But that doesn't mean that they all have faith. In fact, very few of them have the same type of faith that we're going to see from Jairus and from this woman in the passage. Nonetheless, they're pressing in around him. And an unexpected, very important person cuts through the crowd. He's the ruler of the town's synagogue, and his name is Jairus. Jairus would have been an important, dignified figure in this town. His job was to, to make sure that the synagogue was ready for everyone to meet. He maybe even would have been the one who led the synagogue meetings, who, who invited the, the readers up to read and the teachers up to teach and, and kind of kept things moving. He's a religious leader of sorts. And you might remember that, that Jesus is not exactly held in high esteem by most of the religious community by this point. But Jairus is desperate. His 12-year-old little girl is dying. We learn that she's 12 later on in the accounts. And just to make this real for you, um, for those of you who know them, like, this is the same age as like, between Ella McGrath and Karis Martin. Dads, imagine yourself in that position. Moms, feel the sense of desperation here. Sometimes despair, sometimes desperation is the best place you can possibly be. Because until we despair of every other option, we cannot fully see just how incredible the salvation of Jesus Christ is. And so I imagine Jairus, out of breath, from rushing to get to Jesus and, and pushing through the crowds, and he, he falls at Jesus' feet. He's, he's begging him, come, my little girl is at the point of death. Now, when, she, when he says she's at the point of death, uh, he's not just saying she's sick and the prognosis doesn't look good. No, he's saying she is dying now. We know that not only from the words that he uses, but also from what happens when there's even the slightest delay. She actually dies, right? And so this is the moment where the EMT would say, uh, get the defibrillator paddles, start CPR. This is it. This is the moment in the hospital TV show where the doctors tell the father to, to back away from his daughter because he's frantic and, and, and where all of the hospital staff comes in and is hovering over the table and trying to, to fix what's going on. Only none of those medical personnel exist here. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Death is close at hand. 
And that's what brings Jairus to Jesus. It's a sense of hopelessness, a sense of desperation in the face of death. But I want you to pay close attention to how he words his request in verse 23. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He's requesting the the touch, the nearness, the presence of Jesus because he has seen what Jesus can do before. Now we know from other stories that Jesus doesn't need to physically touch a person in order to heal them. His touch is not magical. He's even going to clarify that in a moment. But his touch is important for another reason. His touch communicates power and presence His touch communicates his compassionate care. And if it demonstrates that that he is the healer and no one else. He's the one that touched them. No one else. No one else can can get the credit for this one. And there is such confidence, such faith, That Jesus can do what no one else can. Jairus says, Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. You hear the confidence there? There's no doubting here. Just fully confident in Jesus. The reality of death has a way of surfacing both our need for Jesus and our faith in Him. And the truth is that death is close at hand for all of us. Maybe it's not as close as it was for this little girl, but but then again, maybe it is. Nobody actually knows, do we? Even the fact that this was a little girl demonstrates the nearness of death for everyone. Her her youth highlights the reality that none of us are guaranteed even the next second, let alone the next day or the next year or decade. And yet we put off following Jesus, don't we? Until our mortality is realized. Each of us must come to terms with our own mortality and the fact that apart from Jesus, we are all hopeless in the face of death. Death causes us to see the connection between our our physical circumstances and our spiritual situation. Death is both obviously physical and deeply spiritual. Death is the physical embodiment of what our spiritual lostness deserves. Now, I'm not one for trying to scare people into heaven with with fire and brimstone preaching, right? Like, saving faith is far more than the fear of death. And the gospel is more than just a a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's more than cosmic fire insurance. But at the same time, we must realize that, that death, mortality, is one of the ways that God gets our attention to help us see our need for Jesus. Apart from Jesus, death carries a sense of fearful unknown. Apart from Jesus, death is the hopeless reality. 
And this dignified synagogue ruler comes undone, groveling on his knees before Jesus because he wants to prevent the death of his daughter. Now, Jesus will prove that he can do even better than that. He doesn't just prevent death, he conquers it. But death, apart from Christ, is hopeless, and that leaves space then for Jesus to become our only hope. Jesus becomes our hope when all other options for hope are forsaken. And the next story, the woman with the discharge, brings that even into more sharp clarity. Her her story drives this point home. So Jesus heads off with Jairus to go to his house. Time is of the essence. The crowds are thick. People are bumping into Jesus left and right. And there's this woman who has had this discharge of blood for 12 years. Notice that's as long as the little girl has been alive. And Mark tells us a little bit about her backstory. Uh, Probably the backstory that she shared with Jesus when he calls her out in a few verses. And he says that she has suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she wasn't, not only wasn't she better for it, she was worse. She had tried everything to get rid of her problem. She was left hopeless until she found Jesus. The second reason we must seek Jesus' compassionate touch through faith is because we suffer at the hands of other saviors. We suffer at the hands of other saviors. When we go looking for other saviors, it only brings tragedy and suffering. Just think about what Mark is saying about this woman and what brought her to Jesus. She had suffered much under many physicians. Now, now you can't blame her for trying to go to physicians, right? Like, where else is she going to go? It is absolutely right for her to go to the physician. So don't take this and say, you know what, she, doctors, medicine, no. No, no, no. Go to the physician. But realize that the physician is unable to deal with your ultimate problem. The physicians were probably trying to help. But apparently, the most knowledgeable people of the day had no clue how to cure this woman of her discharge. And their attempts at treatment had only brought on more suffering. We don't know what exact treatments they used, but we can assume that they were painful, probably even harmful. And we definitely know that they were ineffective. Not only that, they were costly. She had gone bankrupt with medical debt. And so uh, chronic illness, the stress of navigating the medical system of the day, and a whole pile of medical debt. I think there are a few people in this room who could probably relate to her. But we add to that the stress, the cultural and religious ramifications of the woman's disease um, The way that Mark says this, she had a discharge of blood, should immediately make our minds go back to Leviticus. That's where your mind went, right? Totally. Totally. And uh, we should think about the Old Testament law. The the fact that she had uh, this discharge made her ceremonially unclean. And that, that, that means that she needed to be separated from society. She was 
isolated. She was untouchable. She was an outcast. Her, her condition left her not unlike the lepers of the day that we often hear about, right? She wasn't allowed to touch anyone for the last 12 years. That's a long time. Her, her situation is hopeless. And here we see that not only the, the physicians could not save her, but also the law, which was totally necessary for her to obey, still could not save her. It, it was a necessary guardian, but it was a terrible savior because that was not its purpose. And you want to check me on that? Just go over to Galatians. The law is a guardian, but it is not a savior. The law's purpose was not to save, but to reveal our need for a Savior. And we suffer at the hands of other saviors. So just wrap your mind around what we've said so far about this woman. She, she hasn't experienced loving physical touch in 12 years. The only people who have touched her have caused suffering. And the only one who could touch her is now walking away. And that what, that's what makes what she's about to do, both unthinkable and very reasonable at the same time. Along with the rest of the crowd, she, she sees her only hope walking away, and she's not about to let that happen. And so she thinks, if I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. Now this is a bit of a, a superstition of the day getting mixed in with her faith here. It was often thought that healing powers could get transferred to a garment of a cloth or a cloth and that could get passed around some like, like some magical charm. And so if I just touch the garment, then I'll be okay. And so I want you to notice something very important here. This woman doesn't have all of her theological I's dotted and T's crossed as she approaches Jesus. Jesus doesn't need that to save someone. You don't have to have it all figured out before you come to faith in Jesus. And before you come to Him, He can get it sorted out over time. In fact, Jesus is going to clarify what makes her well in a moment. He's going to make sure that she understands that it wasn't a superstitious touch, that it was faith. But until then, Jesus takes this imperfect uninformed faith and uses it to enact salvation. Maybe more accurately, we could actually say that God the Father does that because Jesus is kind of unaware of what's going on, right? And here we see that not only can physicians not save her and the law can't save her, she also can't save herself. It was not the quality of this woman's faith, but the object of her faith that made her well. We have to get that. It is not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith who saves. And if it was based on the quality of her faith, her ill-informed superstition would have prevented the healing. If she needed to know all of the right theological facts before getting healed, it would have never happened. But praise Jesus, that's not the way he works. To her, it's, it's rather simple. She had heard about Jesus. 
She thinks about this superstition. If I just touch his garments, I can be made well. And so she reaches her hand out as he walks away and she touches him. The unclean woman who has not been allowed to touch anyone for 12 years touches the Holy One of God. And in the power of God, according to His sovereign grace, her discharge that she has known intimately and personally for 12 years dries up in a moment. This is awesome. Instead of making him unclean by her touch, he makes her clean by his touch. And in this moment, I I envision her stopping and the the crowd keeps pressing past her and Jesus kind of walks away a little bit further and the world just kind of feels like it's spinning around her and her mind is racing like, what did I just do? What just happened to me? And at the same time, Jesus stops. Mark says that he felt the power go out of him. I love how we see both the deity and the humanity of Jesus here. Like He doesn't know who touched him. And at the same time, the power went out from him. And this touch of the woman was not like the touch of everyone else around him. This was the touch of faith. Now, here's where we see the priority and the heart of Jesus. He is not content just to heal the woman. He wants to know the woman. He wants to teach her about what just happened to her. She saw, she touched him, which is kind of backwards from the other healings, right? And so he wants to make sure he draws near to her in compassion. And so he asked, who touched my garments? He's not angry, but he is very interested. And, and his disciples argue with him, which only highlights the, the uniqueness of her faith. They're like, like, this is a big crowd, Jesus. Like, everyone touched you. Don't, don't get bent out of shape about it. We got to get it to this guy's house to save his daughter, right? But this woman's touch was unlike all the others of the crowd. And so Jesus is persistent. He, he keeps looking. He keeps seeking her out. And, and as the woman is still overcome with what just happened, she, she hears the call and she steps forward in fear and trepidation and she falls to her knees and she tells him the whole truth. Her whole story. And I just love the tenderness in Christ's response to the trembling woman. Look at verse 34. He said to her, daughter, 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 your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Notice what Jesus is doing. First, he's drawing near to her. He's establishing relationship, daughter. He's not chastising her. He's not critiquing her. He's not making her doubt if this really happened or if this was really him. He's just making it crystal clear for her. Uh, My garments didn't heal you as if I were some magician or sorcerer. Your faith demonstrated in the fact that you came to me. That's why you were healed. That's what brings peace. 
Commentator William Lane said it this way. He says, it was the grasp of her faith rather than her hand that had secured the healing she sought. Her touch had brought together two elements, faith and Jesus, and that had made it effective. And that's really good news for us here today, right? Because we cannot physically reach out and touch Jesus. But we can grasp him through faith. We can reach out to Jesus in full awareness of our desperate need for him. Through faith, we can experience his compassionate touch, his nearness, his presence. Now, I'm not preaching some name it, claim it, just believe and you'll be healed theology That's not the point of this story. In fact, Jesus proves that's not the point of this miracle by going back for her and seeking her out even when the disciples didn't want to stop and even when he had some other place to be. He's demonstrating that the relationship to him, not just her physical healing, is most important to his heart. Her healing is just a foretaste of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Her healing is the taste of what heaven will be. And he does not, and he does that work, I'm sorry. He does that work by drawing near to us through faith. Even our imperfect, sometimes mistaken faith. But understand, we never get to that point of desperation for Jesus until we recognize the inability of other saviors. Other people can't save us with all of their knowledge and training and skills and, and, and the good feelings of approval and relationship that they bring to us. Nobody can save us other than Jesus. The law can't save us. Obedience can't save us. It only highlights our need for salvation. We can't save ourselves based on our own performance or the quality of our faith or anything else. Only Jesus can save us. And we will only find a world of suffering if we try to find salvation anywhere else. Other people will let us down and even cause more harm Performance, according to the law, will leave us spinning our wheels in cycles of guilt and shame. Even relying on the quality of our faith will leave us anxious and wondering, do we have enough? What if I doubt? What if I don't get it all right? Listen, only Jesus, the object of our faith, can save us. And so seek Jesus' compassionate touch through faith because we suffer at the hands of other saviors. What doctors could not do in 12 years. What the law could not rescue her from. And what she couldn't even fully understand as she approached Jesus, Jesus accomplished in an instant. Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. And the sooner we understand that, the sooner we can get to Jesus and find life. Now, now speaking of soon... Jairus is still trying to get to Jesus, to his daughter, soon enough that she doesn't die, right? 
And Jesus' compassion for this woman has, has just taken up critical moments in her life. So much so that someone's already come from the house, interrupted the conversation, it's, Mark says, while they were still speaking about this. And he says, don't trouble the teacher anymore, your daughter's dead. You just imagine the deflated feeling of Jairus at that point. And of course, that's what you would say typically when somebody has already died. But remember, uh, Jesus is the hope for the hopeless. And you can see Jesus' compassionate touch through faith because nothing, not even death, is out of his hands. Nothing, not even death, is out of his hands. Notice what Jesus says to Jairus in verse 36. He, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Jesus has commended the faith of the woman with the discharge. Now he's going to call Jairus to an even greater faith. Not just a faith in his healing power, but a faith in his resurrecting power. A few weeks ago, I said that the miracles of Jesus that he's doing in this second half of Act 1 in Mark's Gospel are, are increasing in intensity since the beginning of the book. The power over the, the storm, the power over a whole legion of demons, not just one like he cast it out at the beginning. The power over now death, not just disease. Mark is making it impossible to see Jesus as anyone other than the Son of God. And this miracle is no exception. However, as we've seen previously, Jesus has to be careful. His, his fame has already spread like crazy. People, people want him for what he can do, not for who he is. They're also still seriously confused about what it means for, for the Messiah to be in their midst. And so Jesus has to act somewhat secretively. He, he leaves all the disciples with the, with the rest of the crowd, except he, he takes Peter and James and John. These, these three kind of become part of the inner circle of disciples. This is the first time that they're mentioned together in the book of Mark. And they get to witness some of the most incredible things that Jesus did, including this one. And when he arrives at the house, there's, there's already a number of people wailing loudly. In that day, it was expected that when someone died, you hired professional mourners. And apparently, this girl was so close to death that the family had already called them in. And when she was confirmed dead, they, they started their ritual mourning even before Jairus got back to the house. Now, in an effort to maintain some of his secrecy about his identity, Jesus says, uh, the child is not dead. She's only sleeping. Now, it's, it's technically true because sleeping was a euphemism for being dead, right? And Jesus is about to wake her up. But at this statement, it's, it tells us something that the professional mourners uh, break character from their grief and laugh at him. Not very professional, if you ask me. But, but you have to understand, these people understood death. This was their job. So, so this would be like if you walked into Mike Miller's funeral home, 
and you told him that one of the corpses that he was standing over embalming wasn't actually dead. He'd do that Mike Miller laugh thing that he does sometimes because he's a nice guy like, yeah, yeah, right, okay? And the fact that they're already mourning, the professionals know that this girl is dead. And this isn't some parlor trick that Jesus is about to do. And so Jesus rushes them all outside, and they're, they're no help to the situation. Besides, he doesn't really want a lot of people seeing this right now anyway, but he does bring the parents in with him. He cares about them. The father is the one who's come to him in faith. The, the wife stayed back with the girl, right? He cares. Now just picture this moment that's ver- described in verse 41. He probably kneels down beside the bed mat, right? And he reaches over her lifeless body and it says that he took her hand in his. By the way, that would technically make him ceremonially unclean again. But that touch shows that Jesus is concerned, that he is drawing near, and that it is his power, not anyone else's, who is going to save this little girl. And he leans over and he speaks into her ears these words in Aramaic, the common language that he spoke, Talitha kumai, little girl, arise. And Mark says in verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I love how real that description is. She's 12 and when a 12-year-old is sick, all they do is lay around, right? But when a 12-year-old is healthy, like try to get them to lay around. At least my boys. He's not quite 12 yet, but still. And so I imagine this amazement that, that, that comes over them involves some hugging and crying and loud shouting and dancing and, and everybody outside's like, what's going on in the house, right? And just like most 12-year-olds, she gets hungry pretty fast. And so he's like, go get her something to eat. She is completely restored to life. And she proves that nothing, not even death, is out of his hands. Just like the woman with the discharge who had no hope. Just like the the demonized man from last week who could not be subdued even with chains. Just like the storm that was about to overtake the disciples and cause their death. Nothing, not even death, is out of his hands. Jesus doesn't just heal temporary diseases. He overcomes death itself. The healings have escalated to the highest point. You you can't top a resurrection miracle, except maybe the resurrection that's still to come in Mark's gospel. The resurrection that makes possible all other resurrections that saves us from death itself. You see, this girl was raised from death, but, but she would die again, physically speaking. But in just a short time, Jesus himself would die. And he would die on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He would pay for the sin that makes us deserve death. That makes death imminent for us. 
and he would be raised from the dead to never to die again. And all who put their faith in him alone as their only Savior and Lord are raised with him to everlasting life. Sure, they may die physically unless he returns before that happens, but they will not die in the second death, the the death of judgment, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And you must seek him. You must seek him in faith. First of all, you must realize your hopelessness Apart from Him, do you really believe what we sang earlier? Lord, I need You. Lord, I need You. I have no one else. I need You. Have you come face to face with your own mortality? With your own desperate need? Have you come face to face with the fact that your sin plays a part in that? That we deserve everything that we get because we play a role in sin. In the fallenness of this world through our sin. You need to realize your hopelessness apart from Him. Second, you need to recognize the futility of other saviors. It's amazing to me how we will say that we believe that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. And then trust in all sorts of other things. And not keep going back to Jesus as the one who will save us. You must believe that no one else can save you. The law, your performance cannot save you. You cannot save yourself. And you must believe that nothing, not even death, is out of Jesus' hands. He is the Lord of life who has conquered death and he brings new life to all those who were dead in their sin when they put their faith in him. And so you must turn, turn from all the futile ways, turn from all the trusting in yourself and trust in him. He must be your savior. He is the only savior And so let me ask you, is he? Is he? Is he the one you trust? Is he your hope? Or are you still hopeless? What what do you need to trust him in this week? What do you need to bring before him, recognizing that he is working all things together in his sovereign plan for his glory and the good of those who love him? Maybe you need to start that by loving him, by coming to him in faith for the very first time. But if you've come to him already, then it's a continual walk of faith. As David said earlier, the gospel is for us today who already believe as well. And we turn from our sin. We turn from other saviors. And we trust in Jesus alone. And I would urge you to seek your hope in him this week. Do not live a hopeless life. You don't need to. Jesus is here. And then, tell this hopeless world all that he has done to save. 
Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.